brought you here today. I know it's tough, but what 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 is that thing that brought you here today? For me, um, as a young woman, I'm here to support the fight towards reproductive rights. I think that we were just talking about this. We've already discussed this. It's already been decided in the Supreme Court that women have the right to choose, and the idea that the states can go backward in time and prevent women from being able to have options in their own reproductive health is criminal, it's unlawful, it's unconstitutional, and we have to stand up against that. Remember when we wore pussy hats? When we marched in the streets? All around the world, we marched in the streets, the first in a wave of protests that would define Donald Trump's presidency from start to finish, for better, for worse. I'm Anna Soper. I'm a visual artist and librarian in Kingston, Ontario, Canada. This is Teen People, the podcast where I track down people who were in Teen People magazine as young adults. Teen People was published between 1998 and 2006 and featured real teens in every issue. Not the Nepo babies highlighted in Teen Vogue, the Ivanka Trumps and Lena Dunhams of the world, but average kids in New Jersey, Manitoba, and California. Teen People printed their teenage contributors' full names, ages, and locations, making many of them easy to find online today and making this podcast possible. Teen People arguably laid the blueprint for Teen Vogue's emergence as a home for serious journalism. In fact, Teen People covered stories we're still talking about today, such as gender identity, environmental activism, and in this case, reproductive rights. Donald Trump is no longer president, but his influence lives on in the handful of individuals he elevated to the U.S. Supreme Court. In 2022, they repealed Roe v. Wade, the 1973 decision that gave Americans reproductive choice. In July of 2022, Charlotte Alter wrote an article in Time magazine discussing America's post-Roe future. Alter observed that while the American left had spent recent years uplifting women in a sort of girl-bossy hashtag feminism, the American right was diligently working to elect conservative politicians at the state level in anticipation of a conservative Supreme Court. They knew, said Alter, empowerment isn't power, only power is power. That's a sentiment shared by my guest in this episode, Jenny Mushkin-Goldman. Today, Jenny is a curator of contemporary art in New York, but in 1999, she was a high school student in Irvine, California. One afternoon, as summer school was letting out, she and her peers at University High School were ambushed by a group of teenage anti-abortion protesters from a conservative Christian summer camp. Teen People magazine was there to capture the scene and quoted Jenny in the story. The story is called Radical Behavior, written by Deborah DiClemente with photographs by Jan Sonnenmeyer. It was published in the December 1999, January 2000 issue of Teen People, which I have in my collection. When I connected with Jenny, I sent her an image of the article's first page where she was quoted. 
when that happened, I didn't remember it. Um, like it's not a it's not a memory that I carried with me. But the moment you sent that article, I just immediately was put in that time and place and remembered the emotions. I remembered the the posters and the the, the outrage I felt. This incident at Jenny's high school occurred just a few months after Columbine. And while school security is not discussed in the article, it's impossible to read it now without reflecting on the timing and how fearful Jenny and her classmates must have felt. I mean, that day, I, I can go right back to that, that feeling because it's that same headspace as the day where the when the protesters came. Getting out of... Uh, rehearsal and then hearing the news and having the news be something so horrific happening on a school campus that was affecting um, people. The victims were my age, exactly, a, a campus just like mine. So, of course, when we had protesters come, it felt even more um, alarming to have very aggressive um, activists which I don't like using that term for them, but yes, they are. <laughs> um, thrust themselves into what should be a safe space. School should be safe from gun violence. It should be safe from uh, religious rhetoric um, and images that are meant to disturb. They were holding posters of images of, of aborted fetuses, and that is not... Um, I find that's extremely aggressive. And to have that, to, to show those images to teenagers, um, even by teenagers, is, is um, disturbing. During our interview, I read the entire article to Jenny to fill in the details from the excerpt I've sent her. I'm going to paraphrase it here, and I've removed all the other names except for Jenny's. The article begins with a description of the group responsible for this protest, which was founded by a youth pastor who, in an unrelated turn of events, was sentenced to prison in 2021. Where are they now? Let's find out with Jenny Mushkin-Goldman. So picture this. It's the summer of 1999. It's a hot afternoon in Irvine, and this camp is gathering underneath a tree near University High School with uh, their leader, a 41-year-old anti-abortion activist. They're planning to crash the campus and hand out anti-abortion pamphlets and try to recruit teens to their movement. They know that outsiders aren't allowed on the school grounds, but teen people quoted the camp leader. He said, we want to test the limits here. The teens are all Christians, and many of them are homeschooled, and they are rapt as they listen. Exactly five minutes before summer school lets out, the camp leader tells the group that two of the girls, age 14 and 18, will go to the school office and ask for permission to demonstrate and hand out flyers. This is a diversion tactic. They know they'll never get permission, but the camp leader says, negotiate with them, stall them, 
Just give us time to get the job done. As the two girls head to the office, everybody else buddies up and fans out across campus. It worked. The girls kept school officials occupied long enough for the rest of the group to distribute hundreds of pamphlets. So they're being told to leave, but they dodge school officials and they keep trying to talk to students. And Teen People magazine described the students as not particularly happy to have these intruders come onto campus. One of the students is Jenny. She's 17 years old. She's waving the pamphlet in her hand. She says, I didn't ask for this. I thought schools would be secure from people who are a bit fanatic. As you can imagine, the situation starts to deteriorate. There's a small angry group of teachers, parents, and students beginning to stare down the protesters, which of course only makes the protesters more determined to stay. The situation finally explodes when the camp leader's 16-year-old daughter refuses to leave and she struggles to hang on to her flyers as the school's assistant principal tries to take them from her. In frustration, he grabbed this young girl by the arms and pushed her hard against the wall as her fellow protesters scattered. So the police are called. There are five police cars that turn up. And of course, both sides are trying to tell their stories first. For now, the school and the camp leader agree not to press charges. Teen People is back in the van with the teens, debriefing with their leader after this scuffle. And Teen People described the teenagers as psyched. But they seemed more excited about having made people angry than about whether they were able to tap any new recruits. One girl was exhilarated by the confrontation. She says, it was so fun. I was so into it. And the other kids began to laugh. But the camp leader's daughter was less psyched, according to teen people, perhaps a little shaken, and she displayed the marks on her arms. She said, I was terrified. I can still feel his hands where he grabbed me. How did her dad respond? He said, I'm educating my successors. This is their fight now. The word fight is significant here because as you read the article, it's clear that some of the teens have considered violence. And while Teen People is careful to disclaim that none of the campers apparently endorse violence, they quote one who said, I can imagine seeing a woman walking into a clinic and I'm thinking, I just want to save that baby right now. When you think that with one bomb, you could just end all the murders at that clinic. In response, teen people got a quote from the manager of media relations for Planned Parenthood. What value does she place on the lives of the people in that clinic? When you have an environment that teaches confrontation, this is what happens. They're feeding the hatred. On the last day of camp, after the scuffle at University High, the camp leader announced that the camp was suing the school, the Board of Education, and the assistant principal. Since one of the campers was 18, she was tasked with officially serving the lawsuits, and she went with the camp leader's daughter at her side. After prayers and breakfast, the group went back to University High, but as the two girls tried to serve the papers, the assistant principal made a citizen's arrest for trespassing, and the police who arrived at the scene were forced to arrest them. 
The camp leader's daughter was first arrested on the day after her 12th birthday while protesting at an abortion clinic. So she remained calm, but the 18-year-old who was trying to serve the papers, she was a first-timer, and she began to cry as she sat there in the grass with her hands cuffed behind her back. The two girls were booked and fingerprinted and spent a few hours in a bare white cell. The older of the two girls, she calmed herself by praying and doing hundreds of sit-ups. If I'd been more prepared, I would have been stronger, she told teen people. I just never thought they'd try to arrest me. Wow. Um, I didn't expect to get so emotional hearing the entire article. Uh, now I'm remembering that the the incident with the vice principal and the fact that it, it was much larger than just the protest that, ooh, my, I just keep thinking about those teenagers. They're the same age, give or take a year. Kind of where they are now, are they still in, 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 in the kind of confines of, of the indoctrination that they were raised with. Um, and I, I feel for them. They didn't choose that life. No. That's not, you don't have a, you don't have a choice at 12. Wasn't it one of the, the protesters that was um, arrested? You're tw- my, my son's eight years old. I mean, he might fight against what we tell him to do, like get your shoes on or whatnot, but our belief system is his belief system because he doesn't know any better. And I hope it stays that way because I'm biased, but um, that's only a few years from now. And if he were to get arrested based on my activism, that's my fault. That's, that's not his. And um, at the time I, I probably had great loathing for those teenagers. They were my contemporaries. I didn't see them through the eyes of, of, the perspective of being a mother and an adult, but now looking back, I, I just find that reprehensible. But at the same time, they're they're adults now. I was about to say grown ups. I, you know, when you have a kid, you kind of go go, in, go into that mode. Um, and yeah, I'm quite angry because that seemed fringe at the time. And it seemed um, like an outlier. And the hope is like, get these um, extremists out of our way um, so we can just continue to live our normal life. But they won. So um, they are not the fringe. Um, they, they're our government. Maybe some of those teenagers then are the people that are shaping the future that is being, yeah, they're shaping the the future that we're currently living in that feels more and more dystopian. You know, had we known the implications of that protest and protests like it, my reaction and maybe the parents' reactions or everyone's reactions would um, have been even stronger um, and could have mobilized us. But... I know that I was, and many, many of us in that time period were, you know, complacent because 
that fringe mentality certainly wasn't um, threatening our civil rights. It didn't, or I mean, they were, but it didn't seem like like a um, a threat that would come to fruition. I mean, I know that that's because of my privilege that I was able to exist in that space for so long. So here we are now in 2022, and it's just incredibly disheartening to now know that even though it didn't, you know, those laws are not going to exist in my home state and not in my home now of New York City and in New York State, the United States is now, um, you know, subject to their opinion. And now Roe is gone and it's because of them. I was wondering after Roe, can you call the United States the United States anymore? No, no. But I didn't, I, I, that started to erode, that, that very notion started to erode before. For me, you know, because that complacency that I just, that I described to you from when I was 17, I think that it kind of carried through um, up until 2016, being a blue stater my whole life. Um, I mean, or, well, I say that, but Irvine is in the county of Orange County and Orange County was historically a red dot in a blue state. Um, the uh, white flight of the, I think, 70s and 80s of Los Angeles, Orange County is symbolic of that. It, it epitomizes that um, racism, fundamentalism. However, Irvine, being a university town, was was a a much more um, intellectually curious and liberal place to live, surrounded by much more conservative towns. Uh, yeah, I'm a bit at a loss <laughs> for words. Yeah, I can see this is quite emotional. Yeah. Personally, it was very moving, um, aside from obviously the really intense political reasons, but just to read a quote from 17-year-old me that um, sounds so much like, you know, 40-year-old me. I just turned 40. So um, and I shared it with a couple of my friends from high school and they said, we remember this. And, and what they also said, they go, wow, this is, this is you, you know, this is the exact person, like you were just like this now. And I, I would, I mean, probably had, a, I would now have a much stronger reaction, more informed, um, more outraged, uh, than, than at that point, because at 17, I, I didn't really know what I was talking about. I just knew that I, I, that having anti-abortion protesters outside of a public school felt like a violation. It's absolutely a vivid memory that I just, that got lost in time. Hmm. Why do you think that memory got lost? Well, I think that I'm a very political person and I, I react to, um, Sorry, I don't know if you hear my son in the background. <laughs> That's okay. Sorry. Um, <laughs> if it were the only time that something upset me and that I spoke out, perhaps it um, it would stick out more. But it's my when my friends responded to my sending the um, image of the the scan of the article when they reacted like, "Oh, this is you," 
um, that's because this is not the, you know, it's not the first time that I've spoken out and made a stance on what I believe in. Jenny described Orange County as the bubble. Most people will know what that means if they're from there, she told me. It's idyllic, safe, generally prosperous, diverse, but homogenous. There is this, definitely a tolerance for conservatism that I, I don't exist in that, in that world. For better or worse, I live in, the, in, in, in the, another bubble of the intolerant left which I can, I can poke holes in that and make fun of it. But um, I certainly feel more at home here than I ever did back in Southern California. After graduating from university high school, Jenny studied drama and art history at NYU. Years later in 2016, she had a bit of a turning point, both personally and professionally. That year, she curated two exhibitions, which were meant to coincide with the election of Hillary Clinton. I curated exhibitions before 2016, but it wasn't until 2016 that it became political in nature. Um, So the first show that I did that year was because of the election um, called Smile. And that was a show that was um, inspired by the criticism that Hillary Clinton uh, received about that she didn't smile enough. And then the idea of the cat call of like, Hey baby, smile, you're prettier if you smile. And I was, uh, I started developing this, this idea of an exhibition that reclaimed the smile for, um, women. And, um, I, at the time I, I didn't consider it in, um, a broader context of the definition of woman, um, cause it's a, work in progress, you know, but at the time it was, um, uh, cis gendered women. I was interviewed for Mrs. Magazine and the Huffington Post and just making a stance against a specific, um, attack towards women. A few months later, I carried an exhibition called Beyond Secretary at Mark Borgie Gallery in the Upper East Side that was with the great hope that we were moving past Secretary of State and we would have our first female president, Um, But also the idea of moving past the notion that women are secretaries to men, subservient and, you know, always there to play a supporting character. So it ties in a lot with when, when my friends say, no, that's you in the article. I said, yes, it's me. And I continue to be that and actually become more of that every day. I'm actually getting my master's right now in art history at Hunter College, um, studying Uh, writing my thesis on Frida Kahlo with about miscarriage and infertility. And um, I'm researching about her her abortions um, that were what they called therapeutic abortions due to her um, physical, you know, her physical ailments because of the trolley accident and um, studying abortion rights in Mexico. Wow. This is all so timely. (laughs) I think it's also a pleasant reminder that who we are as children and teens is really the blueprint for who we are in the whole rest of our lives. And that there's something very empowering about that notion. Sometimes we can feel a little bit trapped, but maybe we should try to lean into who we are. Absolutely. There's a bit, um, I was speaking to a friend about the idea of adolescence being the liminal space in which that is, um, in which one is the most 
queer, and I'm not saying this in terms of sexuality, but it's that you are able to explore all senses of yourself. Um, and that was uh, an artist friend, a wonderful artist, April Martin, and, uh, and the idea of our authentic self is, is I think, at the most um, crystallized as a teenager, because we are a, sort of becoming adults and yet not bogged down by expectations of adulthood. In a curatorial and artist talk you participated in last year, I saw a little bit of it on YouTube, and you described women as having to deprogram themselves of slut shaming, especially the shame that women can heap on each other. Have yes. you had to deprogram yourself? And you know, what did that or does that process look like for you? Oh yeah, I, I'm in a continual state of deprogramming. Those who are socialized as women we have just this structure that we're born in to think a certain way, even if you're raised like I was with progressive parents, even if you're raised in a progressive environment. Um, it's an internal sense of shame of one's sexuality, of one's power, that um, some people are further along and some people haven't yet to begin that process. Mm -hmm. Um, but I think that, and I, I keep going back to 2016 because that was the year that I realized that it was something that had to be done. It was the first year. And at that time it was, um, some, I keep going back to my son, but it was as, as being a mother, I, I never considered myself a feminist until I had a child and I, yeah, it's. Yeah, I think it's something that can never really be completed because when you're born in a, and raised in a certain way, you're going, there are certain default reactions that come up. So it is kind of like, uh, yeah, it's a form of therapy. It's like you, you constantly have to challenge the natural, not, which is, nope, that's a loaded term that, well, for oneself, the natural kind of knee jerk and say, wait a minute, no, this is not what I have to do. This is what I was programmed to do. What was it about having a child that uh, inspired your feminism? Well, it can be tied back a bit to the idea of teen people or, or teen magazines in general. Being raised as a teenager in the late 90s, that hypersexualization was something that was... Um, extremely influential. And I went on to college and in, you know, it was the Spice Girl, Britney Spears era where empowerment through um, kind of sexual dr dressing and, and sex in the city kind of, be not behavior, but sort of just this, this aesthetic sense was, was dominant. So of course there were probably people at undergrad. I went to NYU from 2000 to 2004. Um, absolutely, much more political, progressive thinking people. But I, I was still in the mindset of just, you know, wanting to be popular, wanting to be liked, wanting attention, wanting you know to look good for the boys, kind of thing. And it served me, right? I think that it's kind of important to think personally of what social constructs are serving you and how you can 
be complicit in them because it's it's benefiting you. And when I had my son, that state of maternity is not serving me anymore in that way as being like a young, like cute, you know, girl. Now I look back and I'm like, oh God, that I, that's not something that I'm proud of that, you know, if you just, you know, group of girls wearing stilettos, walking into the bar, we get free drinks kind of thing. I just had a very simplistic idea of what was, um, what, how you're rewarded in society and the rewards of also being, um, a good worker, like early in my career was always in, in that mindset of, of serving the man in charge. And it wasn't always a man. It could be, you know, a a more old fashioned. I had one of my first bosses was an older woman who wanted me to serve that role that we call it like the gallerina in the art world where you dress in a cute little dress and you wear the high heels and your hair looks good and your nails are done and stuff. And, um, that, yeah, that, that changed because, and it's what I'm studying in the sense of like, you know, that there's the stages in life is that when you're the, the, like in theater, we say the ingenue, if you can be that ingenue, you're at a good point in your life. If you're, if you're not questioning the, the, the system around you because you're being rewarded for that um, rewarded in a way that now I'm thinking is not exactly what I wanted. It's what I, I was, was programmed to think I wanted was just the approval. I was making coffee quickly and making schedules quickly and being really happy and, you know, circling it back, always smiling. Um, and motherhood changed that because my, the, needs, you know, suddenly the needs of another human being were not, um, especially in the United States, having a child and trying to simultaneously have a career is, is incompatible, incompatible. Yeah. So you have to pretend like your experience didn't exist or try to minimize it as much as possible. And that just, um, yeah, it coincided with the politics that just sort of ruptured that sense of stability with the status quo. I mean, perhaps I was a feminist all along. I, I mean, clearly in that article, I'm, I was, I'm not like demure and I never have been, but a, very, a more a cognizant state of feminism and, a, and an understanding that there, that there is something fundamentally wrong with the structure in which we are living in that came into the light for me. Mm-hmm. So I mentioned I'm a Canadian, and you know Jenny's American, so of course we talked about moving to Canada. And I had to burst her bubble. Canada is not the lefty utopia some Americans think we are. Nonetheless, after the U.S. Supreme Court repealed Roe v. Wade, terms like as a Canadian and Canada began to trend on Twitter. Similarly, the Google search how to move to Canada from U.S. spiked 850% in the hour after the U.S. Supreme Court decision was announced. In 2012, the Huffington Post published an article called Americans Moving to Canada, the Twitter trend that never dies. But this trend dates back long before Twitter. 
In the 1960s and 70s, it is estimated that tens of thousands of Americans came to Canada to avoid being drafted in the Vietnam War. Even earlier, during the American Revolution, it is estimated that tens of thousands of Americans moved to what was then British North America in solidarity with the Crown. Known as United Empire Loyalists, these people fought for the British against the Americans, and today, millions of Canadians are descended from these settlers. Towards the end of our chat, Jenny told me she and her husband have considered moving to Canada. She's even come to recognize this impulse as deeply rooted in her family story. My father's family on the paternal side um, came from Slutsk, Russia. So they were escaping um, Russia as, as Jews. Perhaps it's this like generational uh, trauma that what, you know we hear about that is passed down in the DNA. Um, I've, I always have this sense, and it's, my mom's an immigrant from Mexico, that um, I, oh, I was about to say, I love the United States. That was programmed in me. Um, I love elements of the United States. I love opportunities that have been given to my family and the refuge that it gave at the time. But there, I was, um, you know, have this idea, this sense of we need to be able to let go of our material possessions and pack quickly and leave if need be. Right. And, um, I think about my ancestors, certainly when, when thinking about those fleeing Ukraine, because those were the same circumstances, not the same, but I mean, those are similar circumstances that made my family flee Russia. And <laughs> I'll, I'm probably going to get uh, in a little bit of trouble, but um, something that I'll say it anyway, something I find extremely disturbing is when I hear um, fellow Jews not have not have the same compassion that I think that they would hope that their ancestors would have had, which they probably didn't get upon coming to the United States. Um, for those fleeing oppression and violence across the the world. And that that is something that is of of particular um, shame to me that that um there's that there's that the the never-ending otherness othering of of the people that are suffering like somehow their experience is different than the experience of our ancestors a hundred years ago when they're not it's always survival and wanting to just provide for your children before we wrapped up i asked jenny the question i ask all of my guests what advice would you give your teenage self today? Some guests tell me they'd like their teenage selves to speak up more. Others, mostly the guys I've talked to, would want their teenage selves to tone it down a little. Jenny chuckled when I asked her this question, and after a pause, here's what she had to say. That's a very, um, wow. Oh, God, I would tell myself to believe in yourself um, and not care about what other people think. And uh, 
to trust your instincts more about those who are there to um, help you and what genuine love and attention and all of those things are versus this could be another podcast. Um, but it rolls right into the feminism. Just, um, yeah, not try to please. And at, at the expense of my own health, my own dreams and my own sense of self for sure. I may have just repeated myself, but. Thank you for taking the time to talk with Thank me Thank you. This was really, really profound and wonderful to talk to you. After I interviewed Jenny, I did a bit more digging and found one of the teens from the anti-abortion group who protested at Jenny's high school. I sent her an email inviting her to join me on the podcast, but perhaps not surprisingly, I have not received a response. However, I found an article from her college newspaper, published in the spring of 2000. The paper detailed both the initial protest and her return to the University High School campus, where she said she was, quote, wrongfully arrested. You really learn how to question people and pick apart what they're saying, she said, of the training she received in the camp. The first week of camp is basically training us to learn how to pick apart an argument against our side, and also training us how to get people's attention. Crucially, the young woman described the group's support of anti-abortion congressional candidates, something that has now clearly paid off for the American anti-abortion movement after decades of groundwork. I hope you've enjoyed this episode, despite the heaviness of the topic. You can find more information about Jenny's curatorial practice in the notes for this episode, and find me on Twitter and Instagram at TeenPeoplePod. For more stories from teen people's real teens, check out my first two seasons. That's it for this episode of Teen People. Thank you so much for listening. Until next time, I'm Anna Soper. Soper.